0: Welcome! You are listening to Park Avenue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. Last week, together with the tribal heads of New York Congregational Life, I participated in a rabbinic mission to Israel. The goals of the trip envisioned, administered, and funded by UJA Federation of New York were varied. Some were stated up front. Some were only realized upon our return. Ostensibly, it was a solidarity mission a time to stand with Israel in her hour of need. And we, as rabbis, were there to represent our congregations during a time when travel to Israel by non-Israelis is near impossible. Our group was not unaware of the optics. Twenty rabbis of different denominations and different political views coming together in a show of support for the Jewish state. More than anything we said, it was a very act of showing up that mattered most. To the family whose Ashkelon home was destroyed by rocket fire, to the Israelis, Arab, and Jewish with whom we were in dialogue, there was something profoundly pastoral about the visit. When someone's in pain, as we were all taught in rabbinical school, there's a therapeutic value, simply letting a person know that they are not alone. And for me, it meant more than can be expressed in words just to be back in Israel, most obviously because I got to hug my daughter for the first time in 10 months, but also because my love for Israel sits at the very core of my being, and to be there, if only for a few days, even if under adverse circumstances, filled my cup. And I cannot wait to get back again. And, no different than the tale of our Torah reading, the mission's goal was to scout out the land and come back with a report. We met with Jewish, Israeli, and Arab-Israeli leadership. We met with members of the Knesset. We met with several organizations working to rebuild the fabric of Israel's civil society. We visited Ramad Eshkol, the site of recent Arab-Jewish riots. We visited Israel's trauma center in Ashkelon, a community hit hard by Hamas rockets. And we traveled to communities on the Gazan border. We've all been following the news in Israel closely. We've all been following how the news in Israel has been followed. What kind of country would we find? Would the mood of the inhabitants be strong or weak, the problems few or many? I was gone only for four days, not forty. But the task is one and the same. What sort of report to bring back? Is a message like that of the ten scouts one of doom and gloom? Or shall my message, like Joshua and Caleb, be one of optimism and enthusiasm? We're not the Israelites of old, planning how to cross the Jordan. But we are no different than they, bound together to our homeland. What story will I share? What truth shall be told? Well, with more to share than time to do so, I want to identify three storylines, really three fault lines that I encountered, each of which preceded the events of the last month, each of which were exacerbated by the events of the last month, and each are well worthy of our attention well beyond the present moment. Fault line number one, Israeli and Palestinian. To the question I've been asked the most since my return, what precipitated the present round of violence? What was a spark that set everything on fire? I have no idea. Everyone has their own theories. The dispute in Sheikh Jarrah, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Israeli election, Palestinian elections, grassroots incitement, outside extremists, I have no idea. It was probably a combination of a few things and no one will ever know for sure. The more interesting question in my mind, however, is a question of how it is that nobody saw this coming. Within the last year, the signing of the Abraham Accords, a new chapter for a new Middle East, or so we thought. Iran was Israel's problem, not the Palestinians. The last few weeks have made it clear that what happens at Al-Aqsa does not stay at Al-Aqsa. It has profound implications in Gaza, in Jaffa, in Lod, and in Ako. I do not believe that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict holds a key to the Middle East peace, nor for that matter do I believe that the arrival of a two-state solution will prompt some sort of kumbaya recognition by Hamas of Israel's right to exist. What I do believe, though, now more than ever, is that the Palestinian in East Jerusalem, in Gaza, and in Lod see their destinies as intertwined. The hurts felt by one give rise to a response by another. The latest conflict brought these tensions into violent relief. Tensions that have been simmering beneath the surface for some time. Tensions that we brush under the rug at our own, and by our own, I mean Israeli and Palestinian peril. What makes this first fault line all the more troubling is that neither side is presently inclined to figure out how to break out of the cycle. Israel's secret power is its resilience. We saw a school in load that had been damaged in a riot but was already since cleaned up and back in business. Admirable as this is, it also risks papering over the question of why the riots came about in the first place. And the political mood of the moment doesn't help matters. No different than we here in America, leaders are more interested in shifting blame elsewhere, glossing things over and moving on, than doing the introspective work of how things could have been handled differently and how they should be avoided in the future. Case in point is a troubling observation our group noted that even over a month after 45 people were killed and 150 hurt at Mount Meron, there have been no charges, no arrests, no findings of negligence. People just want to move on. Case in point is a news item in the last 24 hours that right-wing groups are organizing a provocative Jerusalem rally akin to the one planned when this latest mess began. My fear is not just that Israelis and Palestinians are living through some sort of interminable Groundhog Day where every few years rockets are fired from Gaza, the Iron Dome is deployed, and pictures of Palestinian casualties used by Hamas as human shields are plastered onto the front page of the New York Times. My fear is that things are getting worse, not better. The systemic issues are becoming more, not less, intractable, and that there is no political will or incentive for anybody, Israeli or Palestinian, to do anything about it. If the first fault line is the one between Israelis and Palestinians, the second is between Israelis themselves. Our group was honored to hear from members of the Knesset, one from the right-wing Likud Party and the other from the centrist Yeshatid Party. What struck me about their conversation, more of a debate, was that the two of them represented not just two different political platforms, but two fundamentally different worldviews. The Yeshatid Knesset member understood Israel's mission to be that of addressing the condition of the stranger, the marginalized, the individual at the periphery. The Likudnik understood Israel's mission as the sole Jewish refuge in a world where only offers assimilation or anti-Semitism. Two totally different understandings of Israel. A dystopian world where the choice between self-preservation and concern for the other is seen as a binary one. We visited a place called Maoz, an organization whose mission is to bolster socioeconomic resilience. Our speaker shared with us The fact that if not presently, then pretty imminently, 25% of Israeli society will be Israeli Arab and 25% of Israeli society will be Haredi. This means, and I'll do the math for you, that a full 50% of Israelis, A, don't like each other, B, don't like the other 50%, and C, are not Zionists in any conventional sense. Israel may or may not be able to fix its political system to stop the endless cycle of elections and disproportionate power of political minorities. But the systemic issues, they're not going anywhere. Israel is a balkanized, multi-ethnic society in desperate need of a common national conversation. The trends are not good, the fault lines growing greater. And the number of speakers who we met who alluded to the fact that neither the first nor second Jewish commonwealth lasted forever and both only lasted for about as long as Israel presently is, alarming. If the first stage of Zionism was to drain the swamps and then came the stage of defending the state against Arab aggressors and so on and so forth, then maybe the next urgent stage of Zionism should be devoted to figuring out how to sustain the fictitious nature of Israeli society. The third and final fault line about which I want to speak is that between Israel and the rest of the world. When we were in Lod, we had the honor of the presence of Michael Miller, the outgoing head of the New York's JCRC, the Jewish Community Relations Council, who joined our group for a few hours. There was a break between the local speakers, and given the presence of over 20 New York congregational rabbis, Michael was kind enough to give us an update regarding the anti-Semitic violence and vandalism back here in New York, his dialogue was with the NYPD, and the work yet to be done to protect our communities back home. The whole thing was an out-of-body experience. There we were, in Israel, showing solidarity for an Israel yet again depicted as an aggressor, and yet we were and remain deeply concerned about our own vulnerability due to the precipitous rise of anti-Semitism back home. You know, we met with the journalist Mati Friedman, and you should all read his most recent piece in The Atlantic. Mati had a great line. He said that when Putin invades Ukraine, nobody adds security guards at Russian Orthodox churches around the world. But for some reason, let's just give that reason a name, anti-Semitism. When Israel is in conflict with her neighbors, Jewish institutions around the world are put on high alert. I'm neither an alarmist nor, for that matter, one who believes that Israel always does the right thing. But what this latest conflict, conflagration, war, or whatever you want to call it, has done in my mind is laid bare the lie that there is no connection between acceptable anti-Zionism and rank anti-Semitism, be it violent attacks by Palestinian flag-bearing thugs, rock thrown through the windows of kosher eateries on the Upper East Side, or the front page of the New York Times, in the eyes of anti-Semites, Israel has come to represent a story of Jewish malevolence. Now is not the time to mince words, now is not the time to stay silent, now is not the time for neutrality. Those individuals who had dumbed down the complexity of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as yet another racial wrong in need of being righted, don't understand Israel, don't understand Hamas, don't understand the conflict, and don't understand the slippery slope of anti-Semitism by which their ignorance gives way to. We're having a few programs this week on speaking to our children about Israel and anti-Semitism. But it's not just a conversation for this week or only for our children. Who we are as Jews has always been measured by way of our willingness to take up the cause and the condition of our people as our own now is a time to be informed now is a time to be active to be vigilant and to be engaged in defense of our people's interests here in Israel and around the world three fault lines Israel and the Palestinians Israelis amongst themselves and Israel and the world Things look pretty grim. My scouting report, admittedly, more doom and gloom than courage and optimism. And yet, and I'm putting a big asterisk next to this next sentence, Israel is the land of miracles. Deflated as I was upon my return, the events of the last few days somehow have mitigated my pessimism. A president-elect with deep ties to non-Orthodox American Jewry a coalition government and formation from a broad spectrum of parties, including an Arab-Israeli party, a right-wing party, a left-wing party, and the exclusion of the extremist party. The possibility, and it's still only a possibility, that this fragile coalition could hold and take shape is testimony not only to the vibrancy of Israel's democracy, but the continued hope, however slim that there are yet enough Israelis who love Israel more than their own political agendas and survival. It's not much, but it might just be enough to make me, as Heschel once said, an optimist against my better judgment. As we learned from our Torah reading, when it comes to the fate of the Jewish people, despair is simply not an option. So let us choose hope, Tikva, and let us turn that hope into action, so that one day, please God in our lifetime, we will be able to say, as did Joshua Caleb in theirs, Ha'aretz asher avarnu ba' la'tur ota, tova ha'aretz me'od me'od, the land to which we went to traverse and to see, well, that land is very, very good. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.